Good morning. Welcome to the 10 o'clock worship sermon. I am Pastor Stephen, the teaching pastor here at Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, this morning we are going to examine baptism. Uh, we are also going to do the Lord's Supper next Sunday. So for the next two weeks, we will be in chapters 28, 29, and 30 of the Baptist Confession. This morning, we are going to examine baptism, what baptism pictures, and we're also going to address the rightful subjects of baptism. Who should be baptized? So let's begin in chapter 28 of the Confession in paragraph 1. It says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. They are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, and are to be continued in his church to the end of the age. According to the scripture and the Baptist confession, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only two ordinances that Jesus appointed, and therefore, only these two ordinances are to be practiced and acknowledged by the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only two ordinances that express in a unique way the bond of love between Christ and his people. That's what we mean by sacrament. That the two sacraments, the two church ordinances... Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only two uh, expressions, only two ordinances that express the love between Christ and his church. And therefore, only these two ordinances should be practiced and acknowledged by the church. Well, Pastor Stephen, that's duh, right? No, 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 not duh. Because there are many religions, like the Roman Catholic Church, which acknowledge more than these two ordinances. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church would acknowledge confirmation, confession, the anointing of the sick, and even marriage as sacraments, as ways that Christ expresses his love with the church. So uh, it's it's not only these two ordinances that other religions accept and practice. There are many others and the Baptist confession along with the other confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith from the Presbyterians reject those other ordinances. Because the Bible only the Bible only permits ordains, and commands us to practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, where do we find this at in Scripture? Baptism is found in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus, after his resurrection, uh, he draws his apostles to himself, and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So in this great commission, the Lord instructs his apostles to go out, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so this is a perpetual ordinance, a perpetual command that the church should practice. And then on the night that Jesus was betrayed, back in Matthew chapter 26, the Lord sits at a table with his apostles. He takes the bread. He blesses the bread. He gives it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body. The Lord then takes the cup. He gives thanks because of the cup. He gives it to his apostles. And he says to them, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we have a perpetual command by the Lord Jesus that his church should acknowledge and practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. The only two ordinances. And notice that both ordinances are only for believers. Jesus says to his disciples to go and make disciples, baptizing them. Not baptizing people that are not disciples, but baptizing followers of Christ. And when Jesus had the supper with his apostles, he took the bread and says, this is my body which is broken for you. And this cup is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus says, I will take again of this supper one day in my Father's kingdom with you. You can't get any more explicit than that. Unbelievers should have no part, no participation with baptism or the Lord's Supper. Why? What, what, is, what is so special and distinct about baptism and the Lord's Supper? Well, next week we'll address the Lord's Supper. This week we're just going to examine baptism. So why is baptism only for believers? Well, one, we just covered. First, because Jesus explicitly commands it. Secondly, Baptism is only for believers because of what baptism pictures. And in the scripture, baptism pictures four events in the life of a believer. Four events. And these events that I'm about to examine, they're not in any particular order. The first event that baptism pictures is a believer's putting on of Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, Paul says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this putting on of Christ describes our new status. When the sinner comes to faith in Christ, 
his former self, the man that was born according to Adam, that sin nature, the sinful man, that's washed away. And the sinner puts on the new man that's born again through the Spirit of Christ. And so when you come to Christ by faith, that old man is washed away, hence the reference to baptism. Secondly, baptism pictures the believer's faith in the triune God. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his apostles to make disciples and baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not names, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one being in three persons. And so baptism pictures the Christian's faith in the triune God. Salvation is the picture of the Father adopting us through the work of the Son, having us cleansed by the washing of the Spirit. And so we see the triune God at work in salvation. And therefore, we are baptized into the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so baptism pictures our faith in the triune God. Third, baptism pictures the death of the believer's former life. It isn't enough that the old nature is washed away. No, that old nature must die. He, he cannot hang on with the new man. And so baptism pictures death to the old life. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we were buried with Christ into his death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too will walk in newness of life. And so our baptism pictures the death of the former life and the creation of the new life. Lastly, our baptism pictures our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Not just the death and resurrection, but our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in some life. And so these are the four realities of a believer's life that baptism pictures. And obviously, only believers can experience these things. Only the believer can be united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Only a believer can have his former life washed away and put to death. Only the believer has sincere faith in the triune God. So baptism is only for believers, one, because Christ explicitly says so, and second, because baptism is only for believers because of what baptism pictures. That's it. Well, what about infant baptism? What about the arguments for infant baptism? What about the household passages 
and everyone in that house being baptized. Well, let's look at them for a minute. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and pause the podcast and get your scripture. And and when you have it, come back and press play. And we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius who sees a vision of an angel. And the angel says to him in verses 5 and 6, Send men to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And so Cornelius sends men to Peter. A few days later, Peter comes and he asks Cornelius in verse 29, Why did you send for me? And Cornelius tells Peter of his dream and says to Peter, Now we are all present to hear what the Lord has commanded you to say. Notice that Cornelius says, we are all here. He doesn't say who exactly is here. Is it everyone in his house? Is it only adults? Are children present? Are his neighbors? Did did Cornelius go and tell his neighbors, hey, uh, Peter is coming to tell us something from God. You're going to want to hear this. We don't know. The only thing we know is that Cornelius says, we are all here. And Peter preaches the gospel. And while he's preaching the gospel to the people in the house, in verse 44, the Holy Spirit falls all on those who heard the word. On all those who heard the word. The Jewish believers who came with Peter to Cornelius' house. They're amazed because the Holy Spirit has come upon the Gentiles, which was evidence of their salvation. And Peter responds to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life by baptizing them. Now, my Pato-Baptist brothers will insist that infants were present. And since the scripture says Cornelius' household was baptized, that must include those infants. But you have to read the entire story. In Acts chapter 11, Peter leaves Cornelius' house and he returns to the church in Jerusalem. And he gives the Christians in Jerusalem a summary of what just happened at Cornelius' house. And how the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. How they were saved and how Peter baptized them. Look at verse 18 in chapter 11 of Acts. Listen to what the Christians in Jerusalem say in response to Peter's story about the Gentiles being saved. The scripture says, and they glorify God, the Christians in Jerusalem, saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see that? Why did the church in Jerusalem celebrate the baptism of the Gentiles? Because God granted them repentance that leads to life. Repentance happened in that house. And that's what gets lost in translation here. The people in Cornelius' house who heard the word repented of their sins. They were saved. And therefore, they were baptized. And you'll see that formula 
throughout the New Testament, you'll see the formula of someone preaches the gospel, another person believes, and that person who believes is baptized. And that's the third reason why believers should only participate in baptism. Because of the formula. Not just because Christ explicitly commands it. Not just because of what baptism pictures. But believers should only experience baptism because of the formula for baptism that's represented in scripture. Someone preaches. Another person believes. And that person who believes is baptized. And that's what we see in Cornelius' house. The Bible clearly says that those people who were baptized in Cornelius' house, they heard the word, they understood the gospel, they believed, they repented, and they were baptized. Our next household baptism is in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Lydia and her household. According to scripture, the Apostle Paul and his missionary team land in Philippi. They meet Lydia, who was a seller of purple dye and a worshiper of God. The scripture says in verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she was baptized and her household as well. Notice that Lydia has a job. She is either, either a single mother or she is a widow. I would probably guess a widow. Nevertheless, she is not at home taking care of her family. She is out of the home and notice that her household is with her. Her household is present. She didn't believe the gospel and get baptized and then bring the apostles home to her house and then baptize her household. No, her household is with her. When she met Paul and when she heard the word of the Lord, her household was with her. In the first century, a household didn't only consist of a husband, his wife, and their children. No, households also included servants. Households often included children who were old enough to leave, but instead of leaving, they got married and they stayed home. They lived in the same compound because maybe the son worked along with his father. And so even the children, when they became adults, necessarily didn't leave. Some of them stayed. It's not like in our culture where an 18-year-old son or our 18-year-old daughter gets a job or they go off to college and they move away. No, in the first century, oftentimes, even children stay connected after they got married. So it's not like the households only included a husband, his wife, and their infant children. That's what Pado Baptists want you to believe in these household baptisms. That when this talks about household, it's, it's husband, it's wife, and it's their itty-bitty little babies. That's not what we see here. Lydia's household is with her at the place where she meets Paul. They're not at home. They're not being taken care of by a nanny. They're not in the crib. They're not drinking bottles, playing in their playpen. No, they are out of the house, in the field, working with their mother. And the scripture says, 
that Lydia's household get baptized with her. And then they all return to Lydia's house. You, you see anything in this text that would suggest that the people of Lydia's household were infants? We see the same formula that we saw in Cornelius' household. Someone preaches the gospel, that gospel is believed, and that person is baptized. The second household in Acts chapter 16 involves the Philippian jailer and his household. We're all familiar with the story. Paul and Silas get arrested. During the night, God causes a great earthquake. Paul and Silas are released from their chains. The Philippian jailer is on the verge of killing himself since he will be blamed for the escaped prisoners. But the prisoners haven't escaped. And the apostle Paul and Silas end up preaching the gospel to the Philippian jailer and his household. Now, it's pretty clear from this scripture that the jailer's house was adjacent to the jail. Because when the jailer brings Paul and Silas out of the prison, they all go directly into his house. And after they're done, uh, the jailer brings them directly back to the prison. So it's obvious that the jailer, his house is adjacent to the jail. But what happens when Paul and Silas enter his house? The scripture says that Paul and Silas preached the gospel. Verse 32 of Acts 16. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's why the household believed and was saved. Because Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to everyone who was in that house. Paul says to them, believe in Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And the scripture says, Paul preached the gospel to everyone in that household. That's why they were saved. That's why they were baptized. Because of the baptism formula that we see in the New Testament. The gospel is preached, another person believes, and whoever believes, that person is baptized. Our next household baptism is in Acts chapter 18. Uh, this one is, is simple. Uh, scripture says in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his household. And many other Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Again, the formula. Crispus, his entire household, they heard the gospel, they believed in the Lord, and they were baptized. So preaching, believing, and baptized. That's the baptism formula. Our last household baptism is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. According to Paul, while he was in Corinth, of all the people who came to faith and those people were baptized, he only baptized Crispus Gaius in the household of Stephanus. Now, our Pado-Baptist brothers, they will say, aha, see, the entire household of Stephanus was baptized. But they don't read the entire story. Turn to 1 Corinthians 16. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul gives us a little bit more information about Stephanus and his household. Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. A little bit more information here, isn't there? Paul says in chapter 16, that Stephanus and the people in his house, they were converts. They were devoted to the service of the church. And Paul says they are examples for everyone else that all the other converts in Corinth, they should look to Stephanus and they should look to his household as examples of how to live as Christians and church members. What does faithful church membership look like? Paul says, look at Stephanus and look at the people of his house. Now, doesn't that describe Stephanus and the people of his house as believers, able to serve, examples to other believers of how to live the Christian life? How are these infants? How are these little babies? It's impossible. Paul's not describing infants here. He's describing people who can make a decision for Christ. They can believe and repent. They're baptized and then they serve the church. They know infants in Stephanus' household that was baptized. But again, we see the baptism formula. Preaching, believing, being baptized. That's what the apostles adhered to. They, they adhered to this formula. And they didn't make it up themselves. It wasn't a formula where the apostles got together and said, you know what, we, we need to set up laws for baptism. What are, what are some rules for baptism? No. They got this formula from Jesus. Because remember, back in Matthew 28, when Jesus gave his commandments concerning baptism to his apostles, he told his apostles to make disciples, then baptize them, and this is the commandment I give to you. Go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, believers, followers of Christ, and then baptize those believers and followers of Christ. That's the formula the apostles received from the Lord. This was the apostolic tradition concerning baptism and the subjects of baptism. Preach, believe, and baptize them. There's no other commandment concerning baptism in the scripture than that. And I don't see the apostles veering from this commandment, do you? Do you see the apostles getting together one day and saying, you know what? I don't think Jesus knew what he was talking about. So instead of baptizing just disciples, let's change it up a little bit and let's start baptizing infants. I don't, I don't see them doing that because that would be disobedience to Christ's commandments. Baptizing those who cannot express faith in Christ would be disobedience to Christ. And this is the apostolic tradition for baptism. And that's why if you would take a cursory view of church history, the early church, like the first century after the apostles, 
None of them practice infant baptism. There is no evidence that the apostles left a written tradition for the church to baptize infants. There's no evidence for that. And many religions have tried to find evidence. The Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, man, they tried hard to find some kind of evidence that the apostles left to support infant baptism, but their endeavors failed terribly. Because the early church, the first two centuries of the church after the apostles did not practice infant baptism because the apostles did not lead them instructions. We have no instructions from the apostolic letters to baptize children. And so baptism is a commandment for believers according to Jesus's words, according to what baptism pictures in the New Testament, and according to the baptism formula that the apostles practiced. Preach, believe, and then be baptized. The last thing I want to address this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you need to turn there in order to see what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is obviously the chapter about marriage that Paul addresses to the Corinthians. Uh, The Corinthians wrote him a letter. They asked Paul several questions, and then Paul responds to those questions in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, our Pado-Baptist brothers would say, see, the child of a believer is called holy, therefore that infant should be baptized. But is that what Paul means by the term holy? That they're saved? Does that term holy mean that the person is saved, that he is a believer, and therefore that person should be baptized? That is not what Paul's saying. Because if you notice in verse 14, Paul also calls the unbelieving husband holy. He also says that an unbelieving wife is holy. We don't baptize unbelievers. Can you imagine a church baptizing a man who is an unbeliever and does not have faith in Christ? A pedo baptist would never baptize an adult who is not a professing Christian. So obviously, if you're going to be consistent, if you're going to baptize that infant because that infant is holy, you better baptize that unbeliever because he's holy too. But that's not how Paul's using the term holy. Paul is describing a household in the church of Corinth that a husband comes to faith 
And that husband's wife has not come to faith yet. And so the husband wants to know, should I divorce her since she's not a believer? Should I divorce her and then go find a believing wife? Paul says no. And likewise, a a wife who comes to faith, but her husband has not. She asked Paul, "Should, should I divorce my husband since he's not a believer and go find a believing husband? And Paul says no. If they're willing to live with you, For the sake of that household, stay together. Because, because through the believing spouse, whether it's the husband or the father, their witness will influence the household. And so that unbelieving husband, through the witness of his wife, will have God's operation of grace. And that unbelieving wife, because of the influence of her believing husband, will hear the gospel and will be introduced to the operation of God's grace and salvation. And Paul says the same thing about the children. That through the believing parent, that children will be influenced by the gospel. And so the believing husband or the believing wife should have faith that through their witness inside the home and bringing that family to church, that God's operation of grace in salvation will work in that house. And eventually they'll all be saved. That's why you shouldn't divorce your spouse. Your unbelieving spouse should not be divorced if they're willing to live with you so that God's operation of grace can work in that house. That's what that term holy means. It means set apart. That this house will be set apart for God's grace in salvation. For God to work through that believing parent or that believing spouse. It doesn't mean that they should be baptized. No one's going to baptize an unbeliever. So we have to be consistent when looking at this passage. That term holy does not mean saved. It means set apart for something. And in this case set apart for the gospel to be preached to them by the example of the believing parent or the believing spouse. Paul isn't advocating for infant baptism here. Next Sunday at 10 o'clock, I will examine uh, whether baptism replaces circumcision. We'll be in Colossians chapter 2 and we'll begin to examine the Lord's Supper. Uh, Thank you. Uh, for joining me this morning. Um, May God bless your uh, relationship with Christ, your house. May you grow in grace and wisdom. And we we appreciate your uh, participation in our preaching and teaching ministry. God bless you.